Good evening, everybody. Let's begin with our motivation. So every day we're bombarded by bad news, really horrific sometimes, many tragedies. It can lead to a lot of anxiety and discouragement. It only leads us to question what progress we actually have made in this modern world. We know that we've made some progress in science and technology and those things have contributed to our comfort and well-being. But these uh, really do little to bring about our uh, true happiness. To bring about our true happiness, we really need to strengthen our inner values. Those ways of living that bring about happiness and harmony. So one source of uh, learning about how to bring about true happiness is the precious garland that we've been studying, that Venerable Children's been teaching on and that we've been reviewing when she's traveling. So tonight as we go through these uh, last questions on Quiz 7, we're learning about the causes and effects of high rebirth, highest good, creating the causes for happiness, and also looking at the causes of lower rebirth, what we need to avoid. And so let's try our best to put these teachings into practice and bring them into our hearts so that we can live with these inner values that will bring about our happiness, bring about our well-being. And when we do that, then we have a lot of space in our minds and hearts so that we can develop all of our good qualities, our bodhicitta, so that we can progress on the path and become fully awakened, so that we can really benefit all beings in the most excellent way. So let's rejoice that we have this opportunity to review these teachings. So um, we're going through the book, the teachings that Venerable Children gave. This book just came out recently uh, that Venerable Children published. It's uh, She edited it. It's the commentary that uh, Kinsar Jampa Tekchak uh, gave on Nagarjuna's uh, Precious Garland. And so... Um, uh, in the previous two weeks, Venerable Tarpa finished up on uh, the questions pertaining to Section 5, which uh, was on creating the causes for happiness. Now the next uh, five questions pertain to taming attachment. And so, as just as a review, you know, attachment is um, exaggerating the qualities of something and then grasping after it, and uh, the result of that is suffering, uh, always. And that's hard for us to see, but that is the uh, result of that. 
And so if we don't look at uh, these actions that cause lower rebirth, uh, very hard to do any progress on this path, you know. Um, So it's really important for us to look to see. Um, And of course the Buddha so clearly laid out, he just observed and uh, noticed that when we do these actions, we get positive results, we do these actions, we get negative results. And so it's just the cause and effect uh, that we're looking at. So we begin with uh, question number eight. What are the disadvantages of intoxicants? So first of all, which verse are we uh, working with in this question? Somebody know? So I looked at, um, I had a hun- verse 146, mm-hmm. and it reads, From intoxicants come the world's disdain, your own failure and the loss of your wealth. Confused, you do what you should not. Therefore, always refrain from intoxicants. Yeah. So what are some disadvantages of intoxicants? What do we know about that? Personal experience or what we've read. (laughs) Yeah, a great deal. (laughs) Personal experience is... And after you become intoxicated, you become do all sorts of things that you, in your right mind, would never do. And then, of course, the next day, either when you go to work or you go and hang out with your friends, everybody's kind of, you know, elbowing and kind of rolling their eyes. So your reputation really does go down the tubes because, you, first of all, you don't remember. Second of all, you're behaving really inappropriately and creating all sorts of destructive actions of body and speech. And then there's just a lot of disdain, even by not only just the your peers, but also people who are much wiser than you that are kind of sad and disappointed seeing how you're behaving. So, mm-hmm. reputation for sure. Mm-hmm. What else? I think it inhibits your growth, both um, socially and spiritually, mm-hmm. and wastes a lot of time that could be time well spent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anything else? It just, it destroys family life. Um, so the if the parents are drinking, um, the children are getting neglected emotionally. Um, it influences the work life. The people might lose their jobs. They are not reliable anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I wish I would have asked myself this question many years ago, <laughs> but it didn't. And so you have to wonder, you know, we're not in control of our mind right now. And we're not even drunk. We're not in control of our mind and we're Buddhist practitioners. So why would we consider for a moment that drinking would enhance things? And we were just following social norms. Everyone does it. Everyone I knew drank. Um, But yeah, just all the reasons given so far. And what a profound waste of time and money Money. Mm -hmm. and a life, Mm -hmm. a precious human life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this someone online commented that, like, your thinking mind is clouded, Mm -hmm. impulse control is weakened, lose inhibitions, and we waste time and resources and lie and cheat Mm -hmm. to procure more those intoxicants. Yep. 
that about covers it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think a lot of people, when they commit a crime, they were drunk. Yeah. 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 So we do uh, uh, outreach for uh, inmates in prison. And um, uh, I think without fail, I can't remember any inmate that I've written to or conversed with that uh, drugs or alcohol was not involved in their uh, ending up in prison. Uh, and um, that's such a tragedy. Um, you know, anything from uh, being drunk and driving and killing someone on the street to um, being, you know, drunk or high and not being able to manage their emotions and getting so angry that they kill someone. Um, and, you know, what, four or five seconds of some kind of behavior and their entire life is destroyed. So... Um, it's quite a tragedy, actually. Quite a tragedy. Yeah, not only their life, but yeah, whoever they harmed and all the families and, you know. So drug and alcohol abuse affects many, many, many people. It's never just a solitary action. It affects many people. Mm. I thought to talk a little tonight about... Um, Currently, the, that this country here is dealing with such an uh, increase in um, especially prescription uh, drug use and people getting so hooked on uh, these uh, pain-relieving medicines, the opioids. And there's a few statistics. There's a lot in the media right now um, uh, about this. There are literally towns that are um, uh, suffering so much from this uh, with people overdosing and, you know, families destroyed and torn apart uh, because of uh, uh, addiction to uh, uh, prescription pain medicine. So here's a few statistics. Um, uh, in 2013, an est which is this is an old statistic, but nonetheless, in 2013, an estimated 24.6 million Americans, age 12 or older, that's 9.4 percent of the population then, had used an illicit drug in the past month. That's a lot of people, and that's up from 8.3 percent in 2002. In uh, 2015, the opioid epidemic killed more than 33,000 people. Overdose deaths were nearly equal to the number of deaths from car crashes. And in 2015, for the first time, deaths from heroin alone surpassed gun homicides. So that puts it in perspective, doesn't it? My gosh. And, of course, the tragedy is that um, although millions of Americans suffer from either alcoholism or addiction to illegal and legal drugs, only a fraction of those uh, are being treated. There was also an interesting article in the Times a while back 
the title was Long-Term Opioid Use Could Depend on the Doctor Who First Prescribed It. So they did this large study um, with uh, Medicare patients, actually, so older adults, 65 or older, and they looked at uh, 375,000 patients um, from, uh, that had similar complaints that went to the emergency room in several thousand hospitals uh, across the U.S. And this was, they took this data from 2008 to 2011. And it found that prescribed, the prescribing patterns of whichever physician they encountered were an important factor in their future opioid use. So um, overall, researchers estimated that one out of every 48 patients who were sent home with a prescription, one would end up using opioids long-term, which researchers defined at least 180 days of medication over a year. And of course, for this uh, particular population, uh, 65 or older, um, having these medicines on board uh, creates confusion in the mind, falls, uh, terrible constipation, um, lack of appetite, dehydration, and uh, addiction. Um, and so they found that the doctors who, that they identified as high-intensity prescribers sent one in four patients home with opioids. And the low-intensity prescribers gave opioids to one in 14 patients. And so the patients who saw a high-intensity prescriber were 30% more likely to become long-term users. So um, pretty important uh, how things are being prescribed here. And so it really puts the burden on the people in the emergency rooms uh, about what they're doing and how they're doing it. And so... Um, and all of these physicians, uh, they weren't necessarily prescribing doses that were higher or, you know, longer lasting or anything. It's just the initial, you know, uh, uh, getting the drug then uh, started this uh, process of getting addicted. Let's see what else. So I guess what they found was that there's a big disparity in prescribing patterns. And so there's no consensus about what uh, uh, complaint we come into the ER with is uh, reasonable to give uh, an opioid. So opioids are um, narcotic medicine um, like Oxycontin, Vicodin, uh, uh, Narco, those kinds of uh, oral uh, meds. Oxycontin, which is a, a very strong uh, uh, opioid that is uh, time-release, so it lasts over a long period of time. And traditionally, like years ago, before the 80s, these medicines were used for um, serious uh, surgeries, like, you know, really major, major surgeries in the hospital, and um, uh, cancer and end-of-life uh, pain uh, relief. It wasn't given to just, you know, going to the ER for this or that, fall down or bruises or whatever. And why that changed over the years is because there was some research that said that these drugs uh, weren't so dangerous. 
And then the pharmaceuticals got a hold of that, and then they started pushing this uh, to the uh, physicians, and then it became, you know, kind of commonplace. So I guess I've been thinking a little bit about what motivates people to abuse drugs and alcohol. And looking at it from a Buddhist perspective, I think... um, since we're always, we have been so conditioned to always look outward to identify where our problems are coming from. Um, and when we hold that view, uh, which is we're all, we've all been conditioned to that, when we hold that view, then uh, that brings such suffering because we really can't change anything. You know, when the problem is out there, I can, you know, do a whole lot of things, but it's not going to solve that problem generally, you know. And so then I think it kind of follows when you have that view, when there is such pain, either emotionally or physically, um, we just naturally look outward then again for relief, something outside. And so that's why these are so... uh, uh, attractive, yeah, to people, you know. Um, And of course, you know, the paradigm with most Western medicine is that, you know, we give you the pill to fix it. Um, And so the motivation might be, you know, coming from a compassioned place, but it it isn't going to result in a fix of a problem um, at all. And I think, you know, If you take one of these medicines, one of these opioids, um, you can see how it separates you from any kind of discomfort you're having, physically and mentally, you know. So it has some attraction to it if you view everything from, you know, all my problems are outside, outside. It's not here, it's out there. And so I think for us as consumers, um, it's really important to be proactive when we are in a situation where uh, these opioids are being prescribed to us. Um, Because, you know, if you have surgery or you, you know, break a bone or something, they are going to be offered, yeah. And so one of the things I do is um, when... A pain relief is offered to me when I'm in that system. I will ask them what the side effects are, even though I know. Um, And I do that so that they kind of wake up. Because, you know, when you do that kind of work, you know, it's just one after another, another. And you get kind of just rote. You know, you just do and, you know, next, next, because there's a million waiting and next, next. And so this kind of gets the person involved in thinking, oh, what am I doing here? What are the side effects? And then I also ask, what are the other options? What are the other options? And, you know, sometimes they have other ones, sometimes they don't, but there are many other options, you know? Sometimes as simple as ice and elevation or heat, you know? Um, Sometimes um, physical therapy instead, uh, you know, of medicine. Um, Sometimes a combination of two non-addicting anti-inflammatories is enough that you don't need to go into the narcotic, you know. 
And then when they write the prescription, I ask them how many they're writing for often because they always overwrite. I mean, how many people have bottles of uh, pain medicine in their cabinets because they didn't use them all because they didn't need them all, you know? And so these things are sitting around and then you have teenage kids around or whatever and then, you know, so it's not so helpful actually. And luckily now with this epidemic in this country, it's coming to where uh, the prescribers are getting a little more aware of what they're doing and they're not being so freely free to write all of these, you know. But we have to be proactive from our own side. We have to, we have to protect ourselves. We have to protect ourselves. And of course, you know, there's many things in, in, that are playing in our healing it's not just pain medicine or not. You know, there's many things. But, you know, to take um, responsibility for what we're putting in our bodies uh, is really important. Instead of just deferring, they must know. They're the ones that know, you know. Well, they have some information, but we know about ourselves. So we have to take that into consideration. And then treatment is... Uh, things are just starting to... Uh, turn around the treatment thing. There's a recent report from the Surgeon General that one in seven people in the United States is expected to develop a substance use disorder at some point. One in seven. One in seven. But as of now, only one in ten will receive treatment. But it really calls for a cultural change in understanding that addiction is not a character flaw which is, in this country, that's kind of how it's seen, you know. Um, And the Surgeon General says, uh, it's time to change how we view addiction, not as a moral failing, but something that must be treated with skill, urgency, and compassion. The way we address this crisis is a test for America. And so among public health researchers, there's a broad agreement about what's needed So um, access to addiction treatment and medications, tighter regulation of prescription opioids, widespread distribution of naloxone, which is a fast-acting antidote when people are OD'd. You can give them this drug and they wake up, so it counters that. Needle exchanges or supervised injection centers uh, while people are getting into the system to get treatment. And then law enforcement efforts to reduce the supply of heroin and illicitly manufactured fentanyl, which is another, uh, this is a very strong opioid that uh, in the past only was used as an anesthetic. And now they've put it in pill form and they are giving it, uh, or also patches. And many, many people are um, ODing on this. Uh, And the bulk of which they think is coming from China and Mexico. So there's a lot that needs to be done. And then, you know, when you think about in this country, the health care with uh, the Affordable Care Act, that was so important because then people that were addicted could get treatment for the first time ever, you know, because it was part of the insurance. And so many people uh, have started to get treatment now. And if they ax that insurance, then we're going to be back to... Uh, People not having any options when they get hooked on this stuff if they don't have resources. And most people don't, you know. 
Um, even if you start out with resources, you get hooked on this stuff. You use all your resources up to get more stuff. Mm. So it's a big problem, for sure. Um, but I think it starts with us, everyone. You know, we don't know. Um, you don't know if you're going to get addicted to something, if you have that, you know, either karmic predisposition or, um, you know, genetic predisposition, however you want to think about it. Um, so we have to be careful and mindful about what we're doing. Yeah. Any comments or anything on what I've said so far? Just a very personal sharing. Um, my mother was attracted to not these um, very high ones, um, these um, opiums or something like Opioids. that, uh-huh. um, but pain medicine, strong uh-huh. pain medicine um, because of migraines. And I was a toddler. I was three, four years old going to kindergarten, and I know that when she took the medicine, I saw a change in her that she kind of raised up and she was more present and mm-hmm, such. Mm-hmm. So I thought this is a happy pill. Ah. And then I took a happy pill and took it with me to kindergarten. Oh, my gosh. And she had it. Oh. Only one day. Oh. Said, Here's a happy pill. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my also a personal story, I've I been a chronic migraine sufferer for um, several decades and um, sometime during my um, treatment, uh, a doctor prescribed Vicodin uh, yeah. and I was on Vicodin for a while and at some point I realized that I was taking Vicodin even when I didn't have a headache mm-hmm. and I also realized that when I was... Uh, coming off of the Vicodin, I was in a very, um, I was very prone to anger, but like really yep. horrible screaming at my yep. family. And yep. so I realized that this is not really good for me. And it's not really taking care of the pain either. Yeah, just masks. Yeah, it's just sort of a, a mask on the pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I stopped taking it. Mm-hmm. And then I actually went to the doctor and I said, Please don't ever prescribe to me anything that is any, Addictive. yeah, yeah do this. Yeah. And so I switched to um, over-the-counter medication. Yeah. And that's kind of how I've treated. Yep. There was also another point in time when, because I've ended up at the emergency room several times, and there was one time they actually gave me morphine, mm. morphine mm-hmm. for the for the pain. Morphine, yeah. Yeah, and then after I had it was horrible. It was just the most horrible experience. Yeah. And then um some subsequent trips to the emergency room, I actually had to say to the doctor, "Please don't give me yeah. morphine. I I hate it. It's yeah. just horrible." Yeah. But there is that push uh by yep. at least at the time yep. with the physicians to get you out of the emergency of room yep. as quickly as possible yep. by wherever. Yeah, means. <laughs> this they area. Yeah, yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, that's the broken system part. Yeah, there's some comments online. This one is pretty personal. My brother lost his family, his house, literally homeless. His job is in serious death. The trust others had in him. And now he's in uh, with a crimin- criminal record. He might lose his freedom. Mm-hmm. It's heartbreaking and all because he just has to stop the thoughts going through his mind. And ad- addiction are complicated 
with the added component of physical as well as mental addiction cravings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no good outcome to these things. And it takes a lot of wisdom to figure out how to treat pain without... um, Because we end up going, you know, like everything, we go from one extreme to the other. So we get scared about getting addicted, and so then we're suffering in pain and we won't take anything, and then we don't heal well. So, you know, there needs to be a lot of wisdom around this, um, um, and somebody uh, having the big view, kind of, you know, so that we can heal when we need to. Because if we're in, you know, excruciating pain, we're not going to heal very well. So, um, so it's it's a it's a complicated process, not so easy. Okay, so now let's go to question number nine. We're going to switch gears totally now. <laughs> so this question, yeah, yeah, this question says, why does Nagarjuna? go into such detail about the foulness of the body of someone we're sexually attracted to. And there were a zillion of, um, he really covered this. I have uh, a page a page and a half, front and back, of uh, the verses that uh, covered this one. Yeah. So there's a lot. Maybe I'll just read a few just to get a... A flavor of what he's talking about. And the first thing to know, too, is these texts were written mostly for monastics often um, or for males, and so it highlights the foulness of the female body. But uh, guess what? All bodies are foul. So we have to keep that in mind. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it starts on. Uh, verse 148, most attachment to women comes from the belief that women's bodies are pure, but in actuality there is no purity in a woman's body at all, or a man's. Uh, Her mouth is a vessel of impurity with putrid saliva and gunk between her teeth. Her nose is a pot of snot, phlegm, and mucus, and her eyes contain eye slime and tears. Her torso is a container of, let's go to the male now. His torso is a container of excrement holding urine, the lungs, liver, and such. The confused do not see that a, man's, that a man is such. Thus, they la- lust after his body. So like that. So it's very uh, descriptive, very, um, you know, exactly what they're talking about. <laughs> and it's kind of shocking, you know, when you read the, at least, you know, at first it is. Is that the case yeah. for most? Yeah, it's like, whoa, what? Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. So why does he go into such detail? What's the reason for this? Yeah, Rebecca? I think the whole way that our society relates to the body is to sexualize it and to glorify it as an object of pleasure. So all our social conditionings, looking at it another way, so to really get us to see things how they really are, then it has to kind of go through it again and again yeah. and again. yeah. There was a piece in here that said, um, stop for a moment and consider everything that's involved when you sexually desire someone. So I was kind of going back to those (laughs) good old days. Um, (laughs) That the things that I used to do to get my object of a desire, I mean, I was uh, just the strategizing 
and mm-hmm. the jealousy when I thought that something else, somebody mm-hmm. else was interfering. Um, the pride when I got my object of desire, I would just kind of strut around like, you know, uh, uh, just a lot of plumage because I had my, my, my partner with me. And of course, just thinking that this was the source of my complete and total happiness, mm-hmm. just having this being and having the body of this being. And, uh, but the mind was totally obsessed mm-hmm. and had mm-hmm. no idea. <laughs> what was really what, was, what it really was and yeah. what was yeah and what and then of course what's the end result disappointment and just suffering, suffering. pain yeah. yeah and then finally revulsion because you know mm-hmm. you can only sustain that kind of attraction to a body for so long yeah you know yeah. that's the only thing that's that it's riding on yeah yeah oh in the the end of the origin story for the monastic vow concerning celibacy after um well somebody goes back and his with his wife again mm-hmm. and when he comes back the buddha tells him oh foolish man um and i'm paraphrasing but he says pretty much didn't i tell you that desire is the root of all the suffering in samsara mm-hmm. and i think that's a good thing to remember in this mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some comments online to really keep one from becoming attached to their own body as well. Yeah. Nagarjuna wants us to really consider what it is that we are so attached to, that we are ones who impute those qualities that are not really there on ourselves and others, and then we blame the other person when we come to our senses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Mm. So our Dharma practice is aimed at seeking higher and more uh, and a more reliable peace and happiness. Attachment and craving for sensual pleasure is an obstacle that prevents attaining either of these. So that's kind of the bottom line, it seems like to me. Yeah. And I thought it was kind of interesting when I when I did these uh, meditations on the foulness of the body, it seemed so extreme and like, you know, there was such resistance and I thought, what, you know? And then it dawned on me that it's, my reaction was because my view is so distorted. That's why. It isn't, you know, because when you do this over and over again, it's like, well, yeah, of course that's what it is. So it's my view that was so distorted. That's why it was like, whoa, you know. And of course, too, you know, um, we usually see our bodies as what? Solid, permanent, real. Yeah, and, you know, attached to and looking at the superficial, like, like you said, Rebecca, you know. We don't look deeply at the nature of the body. There's so much resistance to do that uh, because of our uh, conditioning. And so when explaining mindfulness of the body in the sutta of the establishments of mindfulness, the Buddha detailed mindfulness of the four physical postures, so lying, standing, sitting, um, walking, and then the breath, then the foulness of the body, the elements, and then the nine charnel ground contemplations. And so then that leads us into... um, Question 10, describe the meditation on the foulness of the body. So again, like people have said, the meditation on the uh, 
the reality of what this body is, is done to decrease and eliminate sensual desire. It's not ma- making a value judgment um, about sexual relationships. It's not saying the body is evil or sinful, which in this country it's easy to fall into because we're conditioned to that uh, through the Christian uh, way of thinking about things. It just seeks to reduce undue obsession with our own or others' bodies, helps us to have a healthier mental relationship with our body. And so the meditation session uh, generally begins with some mindfulness of the breath to call the to calm the mind. And then we continue with mindfulness of the various parts of the body. If we do it with our own body, then it's called contemplating the body internally. And if we do it focused on the bodies of others, then that's contemplating the body externally. And through this, then the nature of the body will become apparent. We'll, We'll balance our view out and see clearly what we're dealing with. And so traditionally, when, when one does the, these meditations, the body is divided into 32 parts. The Buddha mentioned 31 parts of the body to be mindful of, and then the brain was later added to make 32. And so the 32 parts of the body are broken into six, six groups as follows. The first is the skin pentad, and that just means the group of five. So the skin group of five is head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin. The kidney pentan is muscles, tendons, bones, marrow, kidney. Lungs pentad is heart, liver, connective tissue, spleen, and lungs. The brain pentad, intestines, mesentery, Gorge, which is the contents of the stomach, feces, and brain. The fat pinhead is bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat. And the urine pinhead is tears, grease, spit, snot, oil of the joints, and urine. So this covers the body, all the parts. So to begin with, we just focus our mindfulness on the first five parts. Head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, and skin. And these are the ones that we focus on because they're so conspicuous. You know, that's when we meet a person, that's what comes into our senses. That's what we see. And, you know, what do we do with those parts? We decorate them, we try to improve them, you know, we change our hair color or whiten our teeth, um, you know, all the different things. Um, try to take care of the bad hair days we had. <laughs> Over and over again, all these different things. And so you can see, if you just even focus on those first five, everything in the body, uh, all the parts can be found between the head on the hair and the uh, nails on the toes. And so the masters recommend that we recite them slowly and uh, so that you don't skim over the qualities, but you... um, uh, you know, really pay attention to what you're saying uh, and what you're meditating on. And after we become uh, familiar with the meditation, then just saying the names verbally or mentally makes the awareness of the unattractiveness of that part arise in the mind. And then, um, you know, after a while, you just, you know, hardly have to bring it to mind and, you know, you, you kind of balance out your mind a bit.
And again, the aim is to lessen sexual desire from others' bodies and to eliminate the thought that taking another body in samsara is desirable. And that is pretty important, you know. And of course, it really uh, counters the uh, conditioning we get, especially from the media, you know, the body beautiful, um, you know, all the pictures and magazines and whatever of all these beautiful people that... um, you know, how can we be like that? And, you know, we compare ourselves to that. Just brings so much pain and misery. And so our self-esteem, you know, is a much more, uh, it's a much better uh, basis to work from than this superficial stuff uh, that we're conditioned to look at. Because this superficial stuff, what happens to it? Yeah, it falls, doesn't it? <laughs> it wrinkles, it falls. <laughs> It cracks, it breaks, and then we die. So it is not reliable. So let's do a little brief uh, meditation so that we can get a sense of what this is. Uh, So bring uh, someone to mind that you think is beautiful or handsome. It doesn't have to be anybody you're attracted to necessarily, you know, personally, but somebody that when you bring them to mind, you know, oh yeah, they're beautiful or oh yeah, they're handsome. And then settle in meditation posture. Close your eyes. And so we'll just do the first five parts and we'll focus on them slowly. Try to keep in mind observing the color, shape, texture, location in the body, surrounding organs. When we say the name of the body part, we're not thinking in an abstract way. We locate it in the body that we've brought to mind. This is their body, what I call their body. And it's just a collection of these unattractive parts. So first is head hair. So focus your attention on this person you've brought to mind on their hair on their head. Is it in itself beautiful? When you think of the hair alone, separate from the rest of the body, does it appear lovely? is so visible and present to our minds it's easy to see the changes that take place in here day by day year by year over the years the dark brown or black or blonde hair turns gray or white or falls out we can see how Quickly, our attitude toward toward hair shifts depending on where it is. Does it make sense to be proud of hair on the head, given that we throw out a whole bowl of soup if one hair falls into it? Then we move to body hair. Similarly, very changeable. So think of any body hair anywhere and then remove it from the body and put it out on the table. 
Anything attractive to that? So hair is just hair, wherever on the body it is or isn't. It has no intrinsic meaning. The hair on the body is not theirs. It is not them, not themselves. It is as impermanent as everything else in their body and mind. It vanishes. It is empty. Now we move to the nails. As long as nails are on their fingers and toes, they may be attractive. Some people decorate them colorfully. Nails are useful to protect. Once again now, let's remove them from the body and put them out on the table. Toenail clippings, fingernails, Young, strong, and healthy nails become old, yellowed, and brittle as they age. Nails can be full of fungus. We can have ingrown toenails. Other, con- other conditions that are a source of pain and suffering. So when we think about them this way, we recognize they are impermanent and unsatisfactory. Now we move to teeth. Teeth are more useful than head hair, body hair, and nails. You see people smiling and they have white straight teeth. Seems pretty attractive. How about when they're 80 years old? And they become brittle, maybe filled with decay, yellowed, needing to be pulled. And then once the tooth comes out, no matter how useful, strong, or beautiful it was, it isn't anymore. Like every other part of the body, teeth are impermanent and unsatisfactory. Now to skin. Skin can be a sign of beauty. Often only if it is a certain color and is unwrinkled. Again, consider the skin of the person you are attracted to or who you think is beautiful or handsome. Now fast forward 40 years. Now what will the skin look like? Is it attractive? Again, considering these points, we conclude, like every other part of the body, skin is neither beautiful nor ugly. It is useful, but also a cause of suffering. It is impermanent and unsatisfactory.
So how did that affect your mind? And it just kind of makes me feel a bit like, oh, so silly, like kind of laughing at myself of, it's like, oh, so what am I really attracted to? It kind of really puts the question back of, especially when it's just kind of looking at it in isolation, it's just like, the it's quite clear that there's nothing really nothing there. I think it makes me aware of how much I impute the self on those pieces and that that's how I identify myself and how I identify other selves is by these parts. So as you took them off, I mean, there was really no self mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. So it's a really, to get that, that reification really quite loosened by doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's Venable Tarpa in the past when we've talked about this. She says that, you know, when you dismantle yourself or another and put all the parts out there, it's like, ugh. But at the moment you kind of put it all back, it's like, boop. I'm like, oh, yeah, there it is. There's that attractive thing. It's very curious. Yeah. With this first grouping, I don't find it as quite as um, gross as the later ones. Uh-huh. And um, so sometimes I really concentrate on how these things can all be a source of quite a bit of pain. Mm-hmm. Like if your hair is pulled or your nails mm-hmm. or your teeth can mm-hmm. be excruciating mm-hmm. and the skin is full of nerve endings, you mm-hmm. know. And I also think about how, as you said, it's what we see and what it hides. Yeah. Yes, because yeah. we yeah, go through this hides. in order. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just think about taking all the skin off and piling it over here, you know. I hear again and again from people who've been practicing a long time to a short time that this this meditation just doesn't work for them. Mm. That they see an attractive person, it's like Mm -hmm. kaboom. Mm -hmm. But Nagarjuna addresses this too. And in the commentary he says, you know, during the meditation session, you'll know the body for what it is, foul. But after the meditation session, it may still look beautiful to you due to the strength of our attachment to it. Yeah. But, and this is where I think the but is for all of us who uh-huh. say this doesn't work. Uh-huh. We don't do it often enough. Yeah. So he says, yeah. as you repeatedly meditate on the foulness of the body, your attachment will gradually lessen mm-hmm. and your wisdom will increase. Mm-hmm. Even though you won't be able to completely free yourself from attachment immediately, you will be able to overcome the more manifest forms of lust. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just the case of we don't really want to do it, so we do it every now yeah. and then. Yeah, Kind of what I was talking about last Friday. Yeah. The every now and then, then, then med- meditation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's just a function of how we're conditioned since, you know, I don't know, beginningless time. So it's in there so deep. Yeah. It seems like... In- I don't know, I haven't, I'll have to look at the text later, but for people listening, I'm just a guest right now, but I, I'm struck by when I see someone um, often with a certain appearance that um, it seems like just in my daily life that people who um, you know, look a certain way often, I'll associate a quality with that. For example, people who have, who I see as female who have a lot of estrogen in their body, I might correlate that with qualities that are considered feminine. And I think of how um, even in um, 
the Buddhist iconography behind you, there, uh, there's this association of gentleness and love with these round faces, like mm. Jizo in Japanese, like Jizo Ka, like Jizo Chirobuk face. Mm. I think it's interesting how, like, like why, on the one hand, it's impos- like we're trying to see through this, and yet it'd be, it'd be interesting to have more statues of Buddhas where they look kind of awkward and but still have that radiance mm. like and, mm. and 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 I was thinking like like why aren't there more statues with maybe there is that there's that one with the buddha as the aesthetic with the uh-huh. really like narrow face yeah. but i was thinking how like how often when i see people with narrower faces that seems to correlate with more testosterone and things that um i push back against but i guess that's what just came up for me talking about mm. this is that sense of how do you how do you um see separate that quality of love from just like chemicals in the body that make you look mm. a certain way and sorry just one other thought was on um, um uh, i'm blanking out <laughs> mm. okay well let, let me just uh yeah. have a comment to that so i think that um we have to be very uh clear about what the purpose of this meditation is and it's a different purpose than when we look at the images of the Buddha. You know, that brings a connection, reminds us of refuge, reminds us of our potential. So that has a different function than when we do these meditations. It is so that we can uh, see ourselves and others clearly so that we don't uh, relate being clouded over with attachment, which is only going to bring suffering. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So two different yeah things we're dealing with, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I guess my other question was about, you know, maybe also, maybe this comes up later, I just have to, to to look at the book, but how Nagarjuna deals with um with that feeling of like a connection with a particular person, like it could just be a very deep friendship, but that could be an attachment. But it seems like often so much of love is even that quality aside from the body, but maybe that's aside from what what we're dealing with now. Mm. Maybe that's part of the remainder of what is what draws people. I yeah, I mean, attachment comes in many different forms. This yeah. is just speaking about this particular uh, attachment uh-huh. to you know our own or others' bodies. But of course, we have attachment to qualities and to you know yeah um, yeah many other different you know millions of different things. Yeah, uh-huh. in another person. Yeah. So um, let's just do a little bit of um, considering how the foulness of our own body affects us. So um, again, let's go through a little meditation uh, looking at our own body. So again, meditation posture, close your eyes. And when I say the name of the part... Again, we don't think in an abstract way. We locate it in our own body. Become aware of it. That it is inside of us or on the surface. Or some of both, actually. So again, we can start with head hair. What it is made of.
Again, if we take our own hair and think about putting it out on the table in front of us, for those of you that have hair in this room. <laughs> but, you know, you could do eyebrows, body hair. Hair is just hair, wherever on the body it is or isn't. It has no intrinsic meaning. Moreover, the hair on the body is not mine. It is not I and not myself. It is as impermanent as everything else in the body and mind. It vanishes. It is empty. Think about the nails, the parts that we can see, and then the part that's underneath the skin, the root of the nail. Now think about finger and toenail clippings on the table. Think about fingernails that collect dirt when we work with our hands, and the dead skin that we scratch from our head, from the soles of our feet, or our ears. When the nails get diseased or they get ripped off, pain and suffering, They are impermanent and unsatisfactory. They are not I and not myself. Now think about your teeth in your mouth. We're happy when they're strong and healthy. They can make us very unhappy Recall the last time you sat in the dentist chair to have a tooth pulled? Like every other part of the body, teeth are impermanent and satisfactory. Though it was once in my mouth, a tooth is not myself. Again, can be very helpful, gives us a lot of information we receive through the skin. Hardness, softness, roughness, smoothness, because of touch information. Skin regulates body temperature. 
When we're hot, the skin expands. Body cools itself through perspiration that pours through the skin. The skin is a source of suffering. Rashes and other skin diseases make us very uncomfortable. Blisters, abrasions. No matter what we do, the skin wrinkles, sags, darkens as we age. Every day our skin dries up and dies. Ordinary house dust is full of dead skin. Like every other part of the body, skin is neither beautiful nor ugly. It is useful, but also a cause of suffering. It is therefore impermanent and unsatisfactory. It is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. So how did that one land as you did it? Bring up anything, any reactions or feelings about that? Um, I, this meditation is really important for someone like me who has always seen her body as something that's a strong identity place for me. It's always been healthy and strong and active. And so as I get older, as long as I see myself, usually the part of the body being a big part of who I am, as it gets older and loses its vitality and its strength, there is a sense of failure. Mm. There is a sense of disappointment. There is a sense of that is somehow affecting who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. So when mm-hmm. I can get this myself away from that identification which this meditation helps a little bit with, mm-hmm. then as the body declines, yep. Semke isn't declining. Yep. You know, there's another, there's another, that self isn't this body that's yep. falling apart. Yeah. Yep. But um, it's, there's a lot of resistance because I can't stop the aging, so I have to do something with the mind because it's not yeah. like I can hit pause and say, I don't yeah. want to do this. Can yeah. I just stay right where yeah. I am? Yeah. You know? <laughs> Or go back. <laughs> or go, yeah, yeah rewind about yeah, 10 yeah. years. So, yeah. yes, yeah, so it's really helpful for me to loosen up my identity yeah. of this body being. Yep. Okay. Yeah. The more that we are uh, disconnected from the impermanence of this body, the uh, deeper the pain and suffering is as we age, without a doubt. Yeah. So it really is a kindness to work with this so that we get clear about um, our changes and our impermanence. And it's helpful to look, especially those of you in the room that are older, when you think about yourself kind of in your mind's eye, what's that picture? Is it the picture that's in the mirror? <laughs> Usually not, is it? What, what picture is it? You know, what age? So that shows how distorted we are, you know? And it's just suffering when we, when we hold on to that. Yeah, there's some comments online. Uh-huh. I have a hard time with this medita- meditation. I am married and see my spouse is aging. 
as beautiful even he's getting older. And another comment is, I think this is more appropriate for monastics. Oh <laughs> 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 <Yes>. uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, another comment is, I used to glorify the body a lot, but have found these meditations incredibly helpful in overcoming that. It was difficult for me to listen to these meditations at first, mm -hmm. but when I saw how effective they were at overcoming my glori glorification of the body, now I actually like doing them. Ah, yeah, nice, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, that's important to realize that doing this once isn't going to do much of anything if you've never done it other than maybe aversion, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, uh -huh. Rebecca. Um, I was part of a, a book, a Dharma book group once, um, book club, uh -huh. and um, the topic of the foulness of the body came up, and I remember a couple of people there um, kind of associated that more with the Theravada tradition of being quite strict and, mm. and harsh about the body and saying, oh, we, you know, with the on the bodhisattva path that uh, this focus on the on the body, the foulness of the body isn't isn't necessary. We don't need mm. to do that. Um, mm. <laughs> and and also with the, um, saying that with the practice of Tantra that you don't need that either because we're not viewing the body in that way. Oh, um, so that was quite interesting. Not really seeing the point of the meditation yeah. getting Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I think that just brings up that idea about we go from one extreme to the other. If I do this, then, you know, I have to hate my body or, you know, and it's not that at all. It's just seeing it as it is. Yeah. Huh? The other tragedy which continues to grow is people who have financial means and no spiritual practice, mm -hmm. then they go to their friendly dermatologist mm -hmm. and they start the whole regime of mm -hmm. facelifts mm -hmm. or Botox. whatever yeah. things they can inject. Mm -hmm. And it's profoundly sad because, yeah. you know, so you might look good for a little bit, mm -hmm. but then that sags and then mm -hmm. there's this perpetual, I'm sure, obsession with, you know, yeah. dealing with the next wrinkle or sag yeah. that comes up. Yeah. And I was, as I was thinking about this just now, I'm thinking that... I'm really wondering about the doctors who do this, and is this even right livelihood? Yeah, yeah. Because they're interfering with something that's just natural, yeah. and they're yeah. actually a participant in the mental suffering that's going on. Yeah. That's just my personal opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Question. Yeah. It's such a narrow view when you get hooked up into that whole thing. It's such a narrow view, and it brings such suffering. So the, again, the purpose of contemplating this you know, in practical terms, meditation on the body parts and elements opens the mind to accepting our body as it is right now, without our usual emotional reactions. That is helpful. It helps us overcome pride or self-hatred. And regarding our body with some equanimity, the Buddha gave an example to illustrate this point. Suppose there is a bag full of different types of grain, rice, hill rice, paddy rice, lentils, green peas, barley, sesame seed, and mustard seed. 
When a, mad with, when a man with good eyesight looks into the bag, he identifies the various grains, saying, This is rice, hill rice, paddy rice, lentils, green peas, barley, sesame seed, and mustard seed. He does not say, This is barley, I hate barley, nor does he say, This is sesame seed, I love sesame seed. So again, you know, to just bring a balanced view of what this is. It's useful. Um, you know, this is how we can uh, practice because we have this body. But it is deteriorating moment by moment as we speak. And if we can keep track of that and be aware of that, then at our time of death we won't be freaked out. We can use our mind then and prepare ourselves for our next life. That's pretty useful, I think. Pretty useful. So let's go to next question. How can you give up making others afraid, not just of your killing and eating them, but in other ways too? What can you do to make others happy? So what verse is this one referencing? 171 I had yeah so that is it says hunting is the terrible cause of a short life fear and suffering and also rebirth in the hells therefore always firmly refrain from killing so this one when I read this this one is quite scary actually I think Uh, it really wakes me up I'll say it that way So killing brings a ripening result as well as two types of results similar to the cause. The ripening result from killing is rebirth in the lower realms. Should you finally manage to find freedom from lower realms and to be born as a human being, you have to experience the results similar to the cause in terms of your experience. You will have a short life, encounter terrifying situations, and be fearful sometimes for no reason. The result similar to the cause in terms of your habitual behavior is being attracted to killing and actually killing others again. So it's important, I think, when we hear this not to freak out. We have to always remember, you know, probably it's a rare one that hasn't killed something. But... You know, in this tradition, we have our purification practice. So, you know, we purify. Um, And so then that uh, transforms the results. Mm -hmm. And I also was thinking about just my own uh, experience uh, being raised uh, of a family of hunters and meat eaters. That's where I came from. And the process of that change over time, you know, it's not something that happens quickly. And we are so conditioned in this culture to um, desensitize ourselves from what we are doing, you know. When we personalize what we're putting in our mouth, when we attach what it is we're putting in our mouth to the body it came from, In my experience, I cannot open my mouth and put it in there anymore. And so that's a process. 
And if we just think about ourselves, if somebody was going after me to kill me, to eat me, what would that mind be like? That would be so terrifying, you know? And we don't want to hear this. You know, when I first started, you know, getting these teachings, it was like, la, 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 you know, I don't want to hear it. But, it, but if we just open up a little bit to what actually we're doing, it's helpful. It's helpful. Um, because when I ate meat, I was unconscious, you know? I was unconscious. And now I'm not unconscious anymore. And I think my compassion has grown. I think eating things that have been killed is a detriment to me uh, growing my compassion to its fullest. I don't know. And you know, this is tricky. I'm not being judgmental here. I'm talking more about what the experience has done to my heart, I think. Um, and it's a process. And I ate meat for many, many years, you know, so I'm not some goody, you know, two-shoes person here. Um, that's not what I'm trying to communicate at all. I hope that's not what's coming through. That's not what I'm meaning. Um, but I think just to be awake to what we're doing is important. Our actions have consequences. It's important. There are varying numbers of how much percentage uh, global warming is due to um, animal farming. Yeah. And it's quite a range, anything from like in the teens to 50%. Mm-hmm. And so I love the way His Holiness approaches this which is to say, you know, if you can be vegetarian, that's best. But uh-huh. if you need meat, if you want to eat meat, then eat less. Yeah. And I think that's a very oh, sensible yeah. approach. It doesn't have to be either or. Yeah. But just raising our awareness and then yeah. consciously choosing to be vegetarian one day a week or yeah. two days a week yeah. or something like that can yep. really help us to yep. bring that change Yeah. Um, about slowly and carefully. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's a good reminder. And that's how it works for most of us. We didn't just one day wake up and, okay, now I'm a vegetarian, I don't think. Who did that? It's a process. Yeah, yeah then we'll listen. When I stopped um, killing, I really noticed the difference on my mind because um, mostly with the mosquitoes, uh-huh. I would... Um, go through the house in the evening before going to sleep and find the mosquitoes and take them outside uh-huh. and just let them land on my hand and walk out and yeah. them off. Yeah. And um, I just really thought about how that was making my mind more gentle because in the past I had responded to something that was annoying with um, fatal violence. Yeah. I would just, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so even though... Even, and even though I had been, I used to kill fish, and mm-hmm. chickens, mm-hmm. deer, ducks. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really dealing with the mosquitoes that I really saw that because I was able to. Yeah. I was still interacting with them. Yeah. I wasn't interacting with the deer in the same yeah. way. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's like it's up close and personal. Here it is right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For myself, where I was disconnected is um, seeing animals as beings, that they have feelings, uh-huh. that, um, yeah. I heard somebody one time said that those animals are, are put on hurt on earth for us to eat. Mm. But then when, you know, having cats, having uh, dogs and horses, you see that they have feeling, they care for you. They, so it changed, it really changed my, uh, my view uh-huh. Uh-huh. on animals. Yeah. On eating. And also, I did share that before, but I had an experience of... Um, I used to love shrimps, right? Mm-hmm. And one day I was uh, craving that taste. And it came to my mind, I said, just for you to feel that craving, you'll accept that animals are killed for oh, your craving, yeah, yeah, your, yeah. that taste that you look for. Yeah, yeah. That really, like, that was it. I never had it. Yeah. That was it for me. Yeah. Yeah. Because my desire, yeah. I would accept that somebody's being killed yes. just for to yeah. feel that. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. I had a somewhat similar experience as Venerable Yeshi, except that I had met the Dharma. I was in Seattle and I had given up meat, I'd given up fish, but I was still doing my occasional chicken. And I was driving up, uh, I think it was. Uh, Five, I don't know, up there in Seattle somewhere. Mm-hmm. And this big semi came up and it was filled with cages. And inside of those cages, each one of those cages was a whole bunch of chickens that were going someplace. Mm-hmm. And it slowed down because we had some traffic and it was on my side. And that, so that I was looking out my window to about the bottom level of those chickens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, me and my chicken wings and whatever. Mm-hmm. And here are these little chickens with their legs hanging out the cages, most of them not having any hair on them, just listless, mm-hmm. you know, their heads kind of bent, mm-hmm. and the suffering. Yeah. And basically the same thought as Venerable Yeshi said. Yeah. You, they're going someplace to be slaughtered so you can have your chicken wings tomorrow night. Yeah. Yeah. What, what the, you know, yeah. what the hell are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. What what nerve? What arrogance? Mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. Oh, oh, delusion? Yeah, yeah. And ever since that day, when I sat there in that car looking at those little chickens, that was it. Mm-hmm. You know. So I think it's this personal experience to see the the yeah. sentiency, the sentiency yeah. Yeah. of these beings, yeah. and the craving yeah. that really doesn't care. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And then too, I think the important thing, like Venerable Losong said, when we are trying to protect life. You know, I don't know how many times in the meditation hall a fly falls in the uh, uh, water bowls and drowning and I stand up and, you know, and how that feels in the heart when I am, you know, when I've been in places where I've almost drowned, I know what that feels like. It's not so wonderful. So that I could help and protect that fly from that terror, that feels pretty okay. Oh, that feels pretty okay. Yeah. 
there's one comment online. Uh-huh. Many years ago, I just came to a place where I could no longer put meat in my mouth. Yeah. I felt like I was eating a person. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You were. Yeah. Ellie? I have a question about how this relates to dairy. I've talked with different people about being vegan versus being vegetarian, and I've gone, I guess I've gone in different directions. I think I'm, you know, maybe... Maybe someday I'll become vegan. I think partly I, I I try not to like make life too difficult for people cooking in my life. Mm-hmm. So it's like, but there's that question of, I mean, with a lot of things. I mean, I guess with dairy, like with yogurt, with I mean, with eggs, I think of where that comes from, and I, I guess I, I guess I've been trying to treat it as something really special and try to say a prayer for the animal whom it came from. But I've been wondering, you know, at what point. I mean, even with with um, with gathering lettuce, bugs can get killed, and so there's mm. like there's a need to take responsibility for that. And I've been wondering how um, could be a question for you to answer or an open question. Just um, how how does one take responsibility for all of that? Like, where is the line between comfort versus you know possible suffering that you can't see or you don't know how the cow is being treated but sometimes you do so maybe you look at the label of where it comes from I don't know Yeah, I think everybody has to answer that question for themselves I guess for me personally if I get too tight with things then um, I'm not so kind to myself and I'm really not practicing very well Mm. so you know I mean there's so many, like here, there's so many things. I have stepped on worms and killed them before here. Yeah. You know, it isn't my intention to do that, but, you know, that's what happens. I have to make some space for that somehow because I'm an imperfect being and these things happen, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to bal- put some balance to this a bit yeah. um, so that we don't get so tight with mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, I wanted to. Okay, if this is not related to meat eating, I just wanted to respond to the broader part of the question too. That the first thing that came to my mind was just taking and keeping precepts. I mm. think is a great way to give fearlessness to others uh-huh. because they know they can trust us not to steal that their stuff and mm-hmm. so on. And I guess also working hard to be consistent. Um, so people kind of know what to expect. You're not gonna be happy one day and yelling at them the next and that's what came to mind for me Mm -hmm. and also I mean in my own experience how I felt I caused fear to people was promising to do things and not showing up and Mm -hmm. then people never quite know if you're going to come through Mm -hmm. and that's a kind of fear Mm -hmm. so trying to do the opposite yeah 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 so this whole idea about how to um, you know create happiness um, we have to start where we are and, um, you know, use ethics and uh, bodhicitta, I think, and um, try to do what we can do from where we're at. And, um, and uh, I think, at least in the West here, it's important, I think, to recognize when we are doing virtuous actions, I don't think we recognize... Acknowledge, or acknowledge that to ourselves very often. 
we're so stuck on all the things we didn't do quite right and all, you know. But I think it's helpful to, not in an ego way, but just, you know, this came from a, as pure a place as it could and I had a good intention and I followed through with it and I did it. And it didn't harm and maybe it helped. That's okay to acknowledge. I think if we don't acknowledge that, we can stay stuck in the past idea of who we are and we don't grow ourselves up to where we are now because we change all the time and our capacity grows and I think it's really important to acknowledge that we've used our time any final comments before we dedicate okay thank you so much